want you to look at James chapter 1. I'm going to be reading verses 5 through 12. If any of you lacks wisdom, he should ask God, who gives generously to all, without finding fault, and it will be given to him. But when he asks, he must believe and not doubt, because he who doubts is like a wave of the sea, blown and tossed by the wind. That man should not think he will receive anything from the Lord. He's a double-minded man, unstable in all he does. The brother in humble circumstances ought to take pride in his high position. But the one who is rich should take pride in his low position because he will pass away like a wildflower. For the sun rises with scorching heat and withers the plant. Its blossom falls and its beauty is destroyed. In the same way, the rich man will fade away even while he goes about his business. Blessed is the man who perseveres under trial because when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life that God promised to those who love him. It was Halloween. I was probably nine or eight or nine years old, I would guess, maybe 10. And for the first time and the last time, I went trick-or-treating on the east side of town, the good side of town, with my cousin who lived over there. I don't remember how long we'd been at it. We came to the house of an old woman. When she opened the door, we shouted trick-or-treat and held out our bags, and she stood and just looked at us for a long time and somehow deduced that I wasn't from the neighborhood. And she looked at me and said, you're not from this neighborhood. And then she proceeded to lecture me on the etiquette of trick or treat and told me that I belonged in my own neighborhood. I shouldn't be in other people's neighborhood. After that, I didn't expect to get anything, but she reached into her bag after reproaching me, and she took out two pennies one for my cousin and one for me, and put them in our bags. It's the last time I ever went trick-or-treating on the east side. I was never going to ask those people for anything ever again. You've had similar experiences. You ask a parent for something, and, and they give you what you want, but only after they lecture you on being more responsible and remind you of how much worse they had it than you did. Or you go to your boss for supplies that you need and she okays them, but only after she lectures you on the realities of the budget. You ask a friend for forgiveness and he or she says, yes, I forgive you, but then goes on to list every bad thing that you've ever done. Or you take your, your purchase back to the store for a refund. And a half an hour, three clerks, and one manager later, you get your refund, but are informed that they didn't have to give it to you because you didn't have, you didn't have your receipt and warn you next time they're not going to give you that. Some people think God is like that. He really doesn't want to give us anything. He has to be coaxed into it. And even then, he's only going to help after he lets us know how disappointed he is in us. 
That's not the God James knew. The God to whom Jesus introduced him. He is, and this is a very literal translation of verse 5, he is the giving God. The God Jesus knew is a giver. He loves to give, and he gives because he loves. This is the God who so loved, he gave. He knows what you need before you ask, and he's ready to give when you ask. If you know how to give good gifts, is something Jesus once said, how much more will your Father in heaven get good gifts to those who ask him? He's the God who graciously, not grudgingly, will give us all things. He's the Father who is pleased to give you the kingdom. This is good news about God. In verse 5, the word the NIV translates generously can also mean, in fact, it's its basic meaning, simply. In other words, God doesn't give with ulterior motives. He doesn't give in order to get. He doesn't give so that he can later say, you owe me one. He gives because he loves and not because he needs anything from us. But we need something from him. We need, verse 5, wisdom. Now, remember what wisdom is. Wisdom is that thing that helps us live the life that comes from heaven in the circumstances we encounter on earth. Wisdom is not just knowledge, it's more than that. Wisdom is the ability to use knowledge in a way that helps and not hurts, in a way that leads to our good and to God's glory. Now, some people know a great deal, just have vast stores of knowledge, but don't have wisdom. They know the year, the quarter, was first minted. And they know the metals of which it is comprised. They know that until 1965, the quarter was made out of silver. But in 1965, it's changed, and mostly it's copper with nickel. They, they can tell you all kinds of things about a quarter, possess ridiculous amounts of knowledge about the quarter, but they never have one for the parking meter when they drive into the city. See, they have knowledge but they lack wisdom. Wisdom is what enables a person to sort through the hundred things that are going on at any one time and order his or her priorities accordingly. You can have knowledge. For example, your knowledge of the English language may be extensive. You may have an enormous vocabulary, but if you lack wisdom, you don't know when to keep your mouth shut. Knowledge, wisdom. The first step in becoming wise is paradoxically the realization that you lack wisdom. Now, you can possess wisdom about some things and yet lack wisdom about other things. You can be a generally wise person but unwise about particulars. Or you can be generally unwise but wise about particulars. When you realize you lack wisdom, and all of us lack wisdom about some things, all of us, it's part of the reason God places us in a church. Because what I lack wisdom on, you may have wisdom on. When you realize that you lack wisdom, James 
tells you to ask the giving God who simply gives and doesn't put you down for asking. The Bible teaches that wisdom is a gift of God and it is therefore something for which we can ask. And remember, God wants to give. He's the giving God. He wants you to be wise, which is another way of saying that he wants you to have the best life possible, a life that fulfills the purpose for which he made you. And he will gladly give you wisdom toward that end. If that's the case, then why aren't more people wise? I mean, it's a good question. If God wants to give wisdom, why aren't more people wise? I think the plain truth is most people don't want wisdom. They're afraid that wisdom will lead them away from what they're determined to have and unwilling to give up. They want wisdom to get out of trouble, but not wisdom to to get into a God-honoring, spirit-enlarging life. But the wisdom God gives doesn't always get us out of trouble. Maybe it will even get us deeper into it. But it helps us endure the trouble, avoid the devil's trap hidden within it, and keep loving God and people throughout. Now stop for a moment and think of a situation for which you currently need wisdom. Okay, Take a moment, think about it. Maybe it's a relationship. Maybe it has to do with a career move or a living arrangement. Perhaps it has to do with persevering and trusting God through a particular trial. That, by the way, was last week's message. If you didn't hear it, go to LockwoodChurch.org and listen to it or pick up a CD before you leave today. It's the intro to the book of James. God will give you wisdom that you lack. He's the giving God who wants your best. But the question is, do you want your best? Many people prefer easy over best. And such people never become wise. Do you really want to know the wisdom the giving God can provide about your situation? If you had it, what would you do with it? Would you use it? Or are you going to do the same thing no matter what? I think that is the thought behind verse 6. But when he asks, he must believe and not doubt, because he who doubts is like a wave of the sea blown and tossed by the wind. The doubt to which James refers here is not so much uncertainty about what to do as uncertainty about whether to do things God's way. The picture here is of a person who's having a dispute with himself. He's inwardly divided. His inward dispute is not so much about what God's way is, but about whether or not he will follow it. The reason this person doesn't receive wisdom is he hasn't made up his mind he wants wisdom. And the problem goes even deeper than that. It's not that he's intellectually uncertain, though of course he may be. All of us are often intellectually uncertain about things. The word that's translated double-minded in verse 8 is literally two-souled. He is two-souled on a very fundamental level, even deeper than the mind. This person has not decided who he or she is going to be. Not decided whether or not to follow Jesus 
wholeheartedly. Until we make up our minds about that, we'll be hot and cold, on and off, betwixt and between. We need to realize that wisdom is a slow download. If you keep turning off during the download, you're never going to receive wisdom. Verses 9 through 11 are an illustration of how wisdom works in trying situations and the kind of circumstances that test a person. Many early Christians were tested by poverty. Most were poor to begin with. Others became poor because of their commitment to Jesus. It led their families to disown them, to kick them out, their employers to get rid of them. They became poor, and that was a trial. And it's a trial in multiple ways. Since society then and now determines a person's worth by his financial standing, a poor, unwise Christian could believe himself worthless. I'm just not worth anything. I don't even have a job. Since money promises security, an unwise Christian might take a job that pays well but is harmful to his relationship with God or his relationship with his family. It's a trial, a test. The Christian undergoing such a trial needs wisdom. And that's not about getting smarter, but about getting a God's eye view of the situation. When it comes to money, for example, you get a God's eye view. You realize God doesn't base a person's worth on their annual income. That doesn't even fit into his assessment. God sees that money can never make us secure. He knows that our wholeness depends a lot more on relationships than it does on earnings. If a poor person asks for wisdom and is ready to ask, is ready to act on it, God will show him through the Bible, through the word of others, through exposure to new ideas, and in other ways that he already has a high position if he's in Christ, a high position that has nothing to do with money. More money will not increase his status, nor will less money decrease it. Money has nothing at all to do with it. The wise poor man will make much of his high position. He will glory in it, is how the Greek has it. He'll, he'll not trade being in Christ for being in the money. Not even for a moment. Money still may be a consideration in decisions, but never a primary one. The wise person is not shaken when he loses a job or gets passed over for, for a promotion because it's not as if his worth is on the line. His ambition is to be like Christ not be like Jeff Bezos or Warren Buffett. He has assurance that God will provide him with what he needs. He's going to be all right. Just that makes a tremendous difference in a person's life. To know I'm going to be all right. The wise poor person remembers what he is in Christ. And likewise, the wise, rich person remembers what he'd be without Christ. He knows his money doesn't make him more valuable than somebody else. He reminds himself that his stock portfolio is worthless in heaven. 
He believes that what he gives enriches him more and what he hoards impoverishes him. The wise, rich person would sooner give up his money than give what up what he has in Christ. He's under no illusion. His future was bought by Jesus, not by Ben Franklin's. He looks at all of his money and he says, that's what I have. It's not who I am. Notice wisdom doesn't make the poor man rich or the rich man poor. But it does enable both the rich man and the poor man to think of themselves in relation to something other than money. It sets them free from the rasping fetters of materialism that bind our society. It provides them with another lens to look through than, than the one, the distorted one, that most people use. And yet some people would rather hunger for riches than be satisfied with Christ. They chase financial security even when it occurs to them that it's leading them into spiritual bankruptcy and they don't stop. That's foolish. The giving God wants to give them wisdom, but they don't want to have it because they instinctively understand it would get in their way. Wisdom changes the way we see things, the way we see money and see other people. Wisdom changes the way we look at our job. It changes the way we look at our enemies. It changes the way we look at our trials. See, it changes everything because it changes us. It's no wonder James places so high a priority in this letter on wisdom and why the proverb says, which he knew well, wisdom is supreme. Therefore, get wisdom, though it cost all you have. Get understanding. Though it cost all you have. Now look at verse 12. This is a verse that you, that every Christian ought to commit to memory. Blessed is the man, newer versions say blessed is the person, who perseveres under trial, because when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who love him. Blessed is the man who perseveres under trial, because when he stood the test, he will receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who love him. Verse 12 is a summary of everything so far in the letter. Blessed takes us back to the pure joy of verse 2. Perseveres takes us back to perseverance in verses 3 and 4. Trial takes us back to the trials of many kinds in verse 2 and to the illustrations regarding poverty and riches in verses 9 through 11. Stood the test takes us back to the testing of your faith in verse 3. Now the crown of life is only mentioned here and in one other passage in the entire New Testament. And that's in Re Revelation chapter 2. The people there, like the people in James, they were the people who belonged to the church of Smyrna, knew 
the trial of poverty very well. Jesus says to them there, this is Revelation 2.10, I know your affliction and your poverty, but he adds, yet you are rich. In James's language, you have a high position. You don't have money, but you're rich. The people in Revelation, like the people here, endured testing. But here's what you need to know. Everyone endures testing. God is producing humans, real humans. There's only been one so far, Jesus. But he's producing a whole bunch of them in a vast and complex factory called Earth, and they all have to go through a quality check through testing. And God is so wise, he designs his test not only to reveal the quality of a person, but to improve that person's quality. Those who submit to him, who keep trusting him, pass the test. And they receive the hallmark of the faithful, which is the crown of life. Life. Pulsating. Growing. Exciting. Life. Creative and radiant and eternal. This is why Jesus could tell those poor Smyrnans who had suffered to the point of death that they were really rich. He knew what was in store for them. Rich, powerful, abundant life is what God has planned for and promised to those who love him. In the light of this verse, George Stulich asks, when a Christian spouse is unfaithful and abandons the marriage, some of you have lived through that, is Christ still worth obeying? When a Christian's financial, financial security is threatened or wrecked, is Christ still worth trusting? I know some of you have lived through that. When a Christian's physical health is crippled, is Christ still worth adoring? When a Christian's family member is killed, is Christ still worth serving? When a Christian's actions are misunderstood or slandered, is Christ still worth devotion? Even if the Christian loses everything else, is Christ still worth honoring? And is the crown of life still worth the perseverance in faith? The answer is decisively yes. So let me ask you, when a Christian spouse is unfaithful and abandons the marriage, is Christ still worth obeying? When a Christian's financial security is threatened or wrecked, is Christ still worth trusting? When a Christian's physical health is crippled, is Christ still worth serving? When a Christian's actions are misunderstood or slandered, is Christ still worth devotion? Even if the Christian loses everything, is Christ still worth honoring and is the crown of life still worth the perseverance of the faith? Then persevere. If we do, if we persevere in trusting God, we will someday, in this life or the one to come, but I expect in this life, be able to say, as terrible as what I went through was, and make no mistake, it can be terrible. 
what I got out of it, especially knowing God and becoming the person that I delight in being, not only compensates for it, but outweighs it a thousand times. And the God some people curse because of suffering, we will bless with all our hearts. We will say in wonder and in love, oh, the depth of the rich, say this with me, oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments and his past beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? Who has ever given to God that God should repay him? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. Amen. Let's pray together. Our God, we say this here. We say that Christ is still worth trusting and adoring in our devotion. But when we go out there and it hurts, and we're looking for a way out, we need your help. And we especially need your wisdom. Lord, our confidence isn't in ourselves or our ability, but in you. Help us in the name of Jesus.